showing you how to reignite the embers of a distant and lonely relationship into a blazing, emotionally intimate connection. I'm your host, Amber Dawson. I'm a psychologist, author, and speaker. A few of my favorite things are my husband, grapes, and my adorable little dog, Riggs. Now let's learn how to create a soul crush in love that lasts. Hit subscribe in your podcast app so that simply by listening, you can rekindle your relationship by pouring a little gas on your relationship ember. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be misconstrued for specific relationship advice. For advice for your specific relationship, seek a local couples therapist for relationship counseling for couples therapy. Welcome back to Relationships Like the Podcast. Today, I have a very neat guest with us today. Her name is Liz Lacey, and I heard her on another podcast, found her to be a wealth of knowledge and wanted to contact her from the moment I heard her speak, which is over a year ago. She's been in my mind. I first listened to her. Um, So a little bit about her. She's a clinical social worker. She has advanced training in uh, schema therapy. She's a certified schema therapist, a trainer, clinical supervisor, and a member of Sexuality Attachment and Trauma Network in New York City. She is trained internationally on addictions, and she's been working in sexual addictions and personality disorders since the mid-1990s. And so that's where we're going to get to go today, to some very specific knowledge about sex, sexual addiction, um, you know, things that are things that are lacking in our lives because of sex, and then how can we heal? How can we overcome things that certainly impact our relationships? So welcome, Liz. I'm so excited to speak with you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So I guess the very first thing... Um, that I thought was very interesting when I heard you speak about it initially was sex is a core need. And I think as people, most of us end up having sex, but it can be one of those topics that can be taboo sometimes, or we don't know how important it really is. Can you explain your understanding of sex as a core need? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a fantastic question because I think we don't normally think about sexuality as a core need. And yet look at right how much sexuality drives us everywhere. I mean, you see it, it's all over social media. Um, and children, uh, you know, when they come into the world, if, if you look at little children, four or five years old, you know, they can be quite flirtatious right? So they're already developing um, little parts of their sexuality from when they're young. So there are some very specific nascent sexual needs that we've seen. And we've talked about, in fact, um, I have a colleague, uh, Afra Morer and Eshkel Raffaelli, if you know them, but they developed a great list of core sexual needs in children. And those are touch and affection, healthy boundaries, body acceptance, safety and agency over one's body, and validation of a child's sexual feelings, right? And you could see how those things are incredibly important in children as they develop. I mean, as you're talking about those, if we talk about touch, affection, boundaries, body acceptance, you're saying these things that are so important in in children. And I think it's easy to recognize they're not always easy, but we can recognize them more in adults. 
But if we look at little kids, uh, you know, I have this vivid memory popping up to me being six years old. I remember seeing a little kid um, on a TV show in a mirror, looking at their body and pinching their rolls, which weren't rolls, you know, they're six-year-old kids saying, look at me, yeah. I'm so fat. And I remember going up to my mom later that day and pinching my tummy and saying, look at me, I'm so fat, because that was what I saw on TV. That's the first memory I have of knowing kids thought about their body and what like an interesting message. And as you're just saying this, I'm reminded of this little me that's starting to become aware that I even have a body. Exactly. And the messaging that you can get around, what does it mean to be in a body? Um, thankfully, my mom responded really well and helped me understand that that was a normal body, but it, it wouldn't always go that way. Right. Um, and and a- absolutely. And the, I mean, the messages that you get now, like through social media, my, I, like I'm, I watch my kids, my son, when he hit like 12, right? I'd always think, oh, that looks so cute. You look so cute. And he stopped me, right? The hand went, stop. I'm handsome now. I'm 12. Right. And you and I, I, I said, oh, and I'm sorry. You're right. You're handsome now. You are. You look very handsome in that. And you could imagine how that could really go off the rails yeah. if you have a parent that that can't just see that the child needs that kind of acceptance and validation. Absolutely. And it's such a good catch that you had. And, and also how brave of your son to be able to say what he is now because I think so many so many of us we don't we're not able to say what we are yeah and what we how we want to be treated and so we just go along and be like okay well they don't see me this way even though I want to be this way so so beautiful that your son was able to one articulate that and then two you're able to respond and validate that yeah 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 And, and um kids will give all sorts of little hints, just like you did when you were six, um, of little things that they might need if, if we're paying attention. You know, and, and I just uh, shout out there to all the parents. Uh, I read some study pretty recently, um, you know, parents, we, we parents think that we have to get it right 100% of the time, right? We don't have to get it right 100% of the time. Uh, the most recent study that I read said it's more close to 30% of the time. So we're not asking, not asking a lot, just a chunk of the time. Yeah, it's so important to be recognizing good enough. It's very different than good perfect. Enough. Yes. Yeah. So how can we think it's important that we start to understand that, you know, our sexual needs are core needs, they're core drivers as opposed to this like other thing in life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you think about it, right, in a very basic way, I, I know sometimes uh, patients I work with will ask me the same, the same kind of thing, like, look, why is this such a big deal? I don't like... You know, why, why do we need these things? And when you think about it, even j- just from a, a purely biological standpoint, every mammal has sexual activity as part of what goes on, even just for pleasure, right? It's part of what drives us. It's part of what connects us. Also, during sexual activity, some of the same neurotransmitters um, are involved like oxytocin that are involved with early attachment and bonding. So that help soothe us, that help us feel calm and safe and okay and trusting, right? We get bonded through sexuality. So we are set up 
to be sexual beings. So of course it would be a core need. And I think that's so important to remember and, and to understand just, you just gave us that brief little summary of our, our neurobiology and what actually happens when we do, do it and that all mammals are doing this. Like it's, yeah. it's not something that's just us. It's not us in isolation. Right. So if this is a core need, it's something we do. It's something that bonds us. It connects us. Yeah. Where in, in our lifespan do you see that most sexual intimacy problems begin to emerge or develop? Uh, really good question. So when you have, uh, I know you asked me when, but so let's say you're looking at this, this list, right, of, of core sexual needs that need to be met. And um, what starts to happen is a lot of them aren't being met, right? The body acceptance is not there. There isn't much affection or touch. Um, and so the child suffers, even without knowing it, maybe the child suffers. If on top of that, you also don't have a lot of attachment to the parents and sexuality ends up, we'll just say sort of inserted in there somewhere too early or inappropriately, you end up getting the recipe that starts to spell intimacy problems because then not you can't connect emotionally then you're starting to have lots of mixed and uh split fragmented messages about sexuality and yourself that's that's generally where it starts and in most of the people i treat you'll see that at six, seven years old, eight years old. It, it'll already be starting there. So it sounds like the origins of some sexual intimacy problems happen long before we actually start having sex. Oh yeah, yes, long before, absolutely. And so it's, what I'm kind of hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's kind of about, you know, are, are some of those early needs met for touch, affection? How do I relate to my body? Are others relating to me, my body, my, my needs in a way that is safe, reciprocal, wanted? Is yeah. it pleasurable? Is it pleasing? And we start to get a sense of that early on and we begin to develop a model for yes. how sexual interactions will come to be as we start to actually have sex. Uh, absolutely. And um, and then add into it cultural right, cultural factors, things that influence it, which right hit on these early needs. I'm thinking of a couple of people I work with who um, had religious views or community views, which were very rigid and strict. They're not supposed to be looking at girls when they're six or seven years old, even though really it's just a little crush. It's nothing more than a little crush, but the, the guilt of feeling those feelings is there. And so shame starts at such a young age, right? So then shame gets attached to having crushes. Right. I mean, you can so see those little that. innocent kiddo crushes. Like I'm chasing you around on the playground. We're playing yeah. like kissy boys, kissy girls, right. you, know, ha, ha, you kiss that person. All of a sudden that becomes something that makes you feel yucky. That makes you feel like you've been bad or wrong. 
exactly terrible like you need to repent one one of uh somebody i work with remembers being 11 years old like that and he started to punish himself he wouldn't let himself go to basketball if he talked to a girl during class that day it was like very very sad that's sad yeah yeah right so, so everything became becomes fragmented and is there any, and there, there might be, there might not be, is there any specific experiences in early life in particular that might lead to um, problematic sexual behaviors in later life, or is it just quite specific? Well, um, a couple things. I mean, like we're sort of hinting at, uh, one is, uh, I'd say, extreme emotional deprivation in childhood, where the basic emotional needs are not being met. Um, and oftentimes early childhood sexual abuse can do it because you know that can go lots of different ways. Sometimes the child learns the lesson that they're only worth their sexuality. And so there's an overemphasis on sexuality because of it and many other permutations of that. Um, and I'm trying to think, and sometimes uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else uh, that can happen. Then, then I like, like I said, over religiosity around sexuality, right, can have huge impacts. And and I guess I mean it makes sense. Like a big yeah. emotional deprivation, your needs not being met, yeah. uh, sexual abuse, which is basically your needs are just violated yeah tremendously and then really the extreme there's so many boundaries around what's okay what's not okay and what if yeah. you don't follow between the lines and so i'm curious from your view how is these things related to attachment and how is attachment related to then our sexual behavior or is that too big of a question i guess you can break that one down and answer but, however you want <laughs> I, I, i'm gonna yeah I'll, I'll answer that one um uh sort of simply um it's, it's, it's simple. It's, I'm going to give you a simple answer. It's, it's not so simple. I'm sure the audience will know that. It's so attachment, which is a very dynamic process, right? So many variables uh, influence attachment. But when an attachment process happened, right? So attachment, I want to say one of the functions, many functions of attachment is emotion regulation right? Mother and child or caregiver and child, father and child, nanny and child, right? Any major caregiver who is able to really dynamically in the moment, emotionally and physically be able to respond to the child so they feel their safety and trust and validation, need for play, all of those things are there within the relationship. Um, the, ch the child is able to then be with the adult and regulate the emotion that comes up, the pain that can come up when they're lonely or sad or needing someone or wanting to play, right? those needs get met and they feel soothed and they feel calm and they feel okay in the world again. When those 
those needs are not being met. And by the way, and so, and during this, uh, during this attachment, you're talking about the opioid system, our own natural opiates are involved, oxytocin is involved, um, and all sorts of endorphins are involved, right? Which all soothe us and help us feel alive and well in the world. So when, notes, when there are lots of attachment ruptures, that process gets interrupted to, to a large extent. And I'd say with people with intimacy disorders, they're quite interrupted. They start to have to attach to something else to regulate emotion. They've got to have something to attach. We all do. We must. I and mean, again, you see this throughout the animal kingdom. It, it, there's so many studies out there about this. And so they have to attach to something. And oftentimes the environment informs what they attach to. So if at five years old, if their parents, let's say they have their parents that are absent, even if it's just emotionally absent, everybody works, there's really no one around, they're left alone an awful lot. And the first thing they find is a parent's pornography stash. You know, sexuality is pretty powerful. They, you know, a person will start to attach to that. It's a thrill, it's illicit, it's, it makes them feel something other than lonely, right? So that's, that's really how attachment has such a strong effect. I'd say it's the core reason why the addiction or the intimacy disorder starts. But we see this kind of like unfulfilled needs yeah. as kiddos, like my need for touch, my need for safety, my need for validation, not yeah. being met. Maybe my parents are away. I right. start to get reward in other ways. I get soothing in other ways. Yeah. Then fast forward to an adult relationship. So we've got a, a, a sense of how this now works in, in childhood. Oh, I want, it, it's okay if we veer off to one other thing, I think. Oh yeah, you veered. Yes. I'm going to veer. Okay. Yes. For a second. So also something that has a big impact too on this is enmeshed relationships with parents. So this enmeshment, it's for the audience, enmeshment really is, it's overly close, boundaries crossed without real intimacy. It's the illusion of intimacy. So uh, I'll explain sort of an extreme enmeshment and then a, a much easier enmeshment. So an extreme enmeshment would be like, I have a patient whose uh, mother used to, uh, when after she'd have a big fight with her husband, get in bed with my patient from when he was six or seven years old and then eight and nine and 10, 11, 12, all the way till he was 14 years old, would get into bed with him and hold him when she was upset. And he felt he had to do that. In time, sexuality and intimacy got split off because intimacy started to feel smothering to him, right? So that's a more extreme. Some families where you have, you know, you have a situation where you've got a lot of children, someone dies, 
things happen within the family and all of a sudden the child becomes uh, almost like the confidant of the one parent that's still there when they're not emotionally ready to do that. Again, that a similar thing can develop where intimacy feels smothering. It feels like too much pressure. So it gets split off from sexuality because in, in order for them to feel their sexual needs, they need a sense of autonomy. So a cyber sex relationship feels more like relief than an actual relationship. So I think just like that was an important thing to just mention. Yes, absolutely. I think it was very important. I'm glad you, I'm glad you split us in a different direction because yeah. I think even that explains some people why I think you gave a bit of a frame for many people experience early off in a relationship when it's not committed, uh, the sex feels closer almost in a way, or they remember the yeah. phase where it feels nice. I mean, they're helped out by the neurotransmitters that are really present in early relationship, yeah. but as the relationship becomes more serious, um, yeah. sometimes one partner gets very confused by the other partners pulling, pulling away and then it's feeling too close. And they're like, what's, what's going on? But even I think that on? rationale helps even explain a little bit why sometimes connection can feel too close. Absolutely. It's just one reason why some it people is. might do that. It's not the only reason, but I think that even just helps give a frame for why connection might not always feel good for everybody. Right. That's right. And, and so, you know, then part of, and part of therapy is so how to learn to go back and feel what it might've felt like to have boundaries, um, to know that you can have boundaries now and teach, teach that, that you don't have to always be available. Uh, you don't have to be anything special. Um, in order to be in this relationship. So there's like lots of reparative work you can do in that, in this area, but, yeah. I, but I jump ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I think I want uh, so many places to go here, but I guess I'm curious. So now if we fast forward to adulthood, what, where this starts to go awry is yeah. I suppose when it is impairing that, that adult relationship. So whether it's infidelity, um, excessive porn use, that's got your parent, uh, your partner upset, yeah. Um, finding you prefer to just masturbate for a weekend to something rather than connect with people. Um, you know, how do we determine when someone starts to get into sexual behaviors? How do we know, like, what's a normative sexual behavior? What's an addictive sexual behavior? What's someone just had an affair and they're yeah. not a sex, sex addict? Like, can you yeah. help us understand that spectrum of problem behavior? Yeah, um, sure. And there is, you know, I'll mention this because um, some of the listeners will know this. I mean, there's controversy even over the term sexual addiction, right? And to me, whether you're calling it a sexual addiction, an out of control sexual behavior, right? Uh, an intimacy disorder, to me, they're all on the same spectrum sort of spectrum. I, I, I suspect there's so much controversy because the issue is sexuality and still it is a tough issue for people to deal with because it affects families and relationships. Is this, you know, is this person just taking advantage? Are they just doing what they want to do or is it really an illness? So the biggest way to know, is it is it a problem? So we'll just look at that. Is the behavior a problem or just normal sexuality? Right? You can't, by the way, from where I sit, 
you can't tell by the behavior itself if it's a problem. So if somebody's into uh, 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 sadomasochistic bondage, right, that could be integrated as part of normal, healthy sexuality. Right? Pornography, which sometimes is considered part of normal sexuality, maybe it is and maybe it isn't what you have to look at is impact. That's always the key. Is the person persisting despite negative impact, right? If they have had negative impact in any area of their life and they keep doing the thing and it ha happens over a long period of time, then you're looking at out of control sexual behaviors. And generally, right, the, the question is, is it just infidelity or is it compulsive? You can see it in the history because it's not, okay, the person's uh, 32, they get married and um, five or six years into the marriage, they start to have affairs, okay? That's more, now, of course, I'm generalizing, but that's more indicative of this is just infidelity. This is just standard infidelity. When you look at someone's history and they've never been able to have a committed relationship, um, despite wanting to have one, um, that these behaviors were happening from when they were 12, 13 years old, it was always being done in a secretive way. They always had all these, uh, these negative feelings about sexuality. And you start to see that over time, that's indicative of sexual addiction, right? Um, they, or they, they can't sustain a relationship intimacy like you said people who um can only stay in a relationship for six months right and then they have to get out these are intimacy disorders you know i think what you said there is really interesting it's it, and helpful so helpful it's not the behavior itself that is indicative of a problem because there's some things like we all have different preferences like yeah you, you know and we all have different food preferences some of us love ice cream and want to eat ice cream every day some of us yeah. never eat ice cream and and I think kind of with, with sex, there's things that some of us are going to do daily that is normal and healthy and open in our relationship. And there's things some of us would be like, oh my God, I would never do that. Yeah. And within the context of each relationship, that can be okay. And it's really yeah. easy to get judgmental about what we think is okay with sex. It's, right. you know, sex is a really interesting one where we think more like we have moral judgments about it. We have views, yeah. personal ethics, beliefs. Um, but I think that's so important. And then to differentiate between um, the impact. And so one thing that's hard here is like, let's imagine someone's doing something that's a secret. The impact might be that it, it hurt their partner, but I think it's also, can they stop after? Is that right? So they Bingo. might do something, but then their partner finds out their partner is hurt and do they stop or do they continue the secret? Right. It, that's, that's absolutely right. So the partner finds out and they say, absolutely, you know, they figure out what's going on and they swear they're going to stop and they don't stop and it goes back underground again. And they find that they can't stop. It's compulsive. They're thinking about it. They're in meetings. They're thinking about it, 
right? They're on their work computer and all of a sudden they find themselves back over on social media, you know, or, you know, on websites that are hookup sites and they spend hours on websites. Those are things that have impact too. They're putting their jobs in jeopardy by doing it on their work computers because it's so compulsive. That's when you know there's problems. So how is this different then? So in in um, many affair situations, yeah, and especially when it's new, people. Yep. I, my experience has been many people start engaging in many different kind of compulsive things in this new phase of infidelity, even if they've never done it before. So they're maybe they're actually with the affair partner. Suddenly they're researching new sexy clothes. Maybe they're all of a sudden on these sex, different sex websites, but they've never kind of really done this before. It's new. And it all starts in this beginning phase. I, I found also there's all this, this like kind of like explosion of new sexual behaviors for this person. And the yeah. partner's looking at them being like, you're doing this, 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 how are you not an addict? What do yeah. you think about that? Um, usually it doesn't happen that direction. Usually when a partner sees their husband or wife doing things like that, it is usually more like, why weren't you doing those things with me? Why, why didn't you come to me with that? You're just using, you're hiding behind the persona of an addict just to get away with it. It, mm. rare, it rarely is like, oh, how are you not an addict? I've almost never heard that. It's. it's I, I guess I'm like, thinking of oh, a specific case in my head there. Oh, you. Oh, you are. You are. Yeah. Thinking, all right. Okay. Because well, I then, think you're right. I think more people do what you're saying. More people are like, "How come not me? Why didn't you turn to me?" I think you're right. That is the more often presentation. I have yeah. a specific case in my yeah, mind. Well, if, if right. So if you had a friend, right, and I've had friends who I I've thought were sex addicts before, where. I can kind of see that they are spending a lot of time. It seems a disproportionate of time on the internet, looking at all sort, all different kinds of porn or outfits. Um, but they've and they've been doing it since they were like teenagers. Mm -hmm. Then it's like, how are you not an addict? If it's just in the context, if it's just in the context of an affair really just in the context of an affair. Um, it may just be the dopamine system that's really engaged, which is the motivation system. Right? That's, that's really propelling that. If you look at it in context of the whole life, that's what'll tell you whether it's a problem. Or not. Context of the whole life here. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, you know, someone comes in, they've started to have some problems. Um, yeah. And, and if you're in a relationship, yeah. uh, often, you know, I guess, let me ask you this, what are the, in relationship, if there's some sort of sexual compulsive behavior, what are the most yeah. common reactions of the partner? Oh my God, horror. I mean, uh, th there's a term for it, which is betrayal trauma. Because it, it's even, it's hard for us to imagine that you could be married to someone for, 10, 15, 20 years and not know that they have a secret life. And then to find out that they have a secret life and they've had 
they've had sex with hundreds of sex workers over 20 years, that all these business trips, all these trips to the city, all these that they've been seeing escorts, every then everything that's happened in that person's history comes into question. They don't know, it's like someone killed the person they loved and now, and they're living with the perpetrator. They don't know who their partner is. They don't know what to believe and what not to believe. They tend to be quite shattered if it happened, if that was happening over a long period of time and they didn't know, right? It's horror, anger, tears, sleeplessness, flashbacks. It's, it's pretty upsetting for the for the partner yeah shattering is a good word like it it's like literally someone came along and took your life and hit it with a sledgehammer and you're left with these broken shards all over the ground and, and one day you might start to pick up a piece or two and feel okay and the next thing you know it all falls apart all over again and it can just be one of those things where you're sitting there and you're like how do I put this back together and you can you but can. It's, it's so shattered that the work is is great and it's the work is huge yeah put it back together because to rebuild trust when there's been that kind of infidelity um, and breaking trust over many many years is difficult i mean sometimes spouses won't won't ever again celebrate their anniversary because they think their whole marriage was a joke because of what was going on I'm kind of hearing here, there's maybe two, I'm sure there's more than two kinds of, of recovery and two yeah. kinds of people that are falling into these compulsive, certainly more than two, this is no generalization yeah, yeah, yeah. For, simpli for simplicity, but on yeah. the one hand, we have someone that's just started to be engaged in infidelity or for some reason, something has happened yeah. in life where now they're coping or soothing in a bit more of a compulsive right. way. And then we have our more serial um, person who this person, the impact of the behavior more likely to fall in that more addictive right. spectrum. Uh, and there's kind of two different paths here. Yeah, that's right. And, and it depends. Um, I find it depends on how early on in the compulsive sexual behavior you can get the person into treatment. So um, while I'll, I'll work with some people who are in their 20s, it's, it's I'm not going to say easy, but it's much easier to heal that it's been happening for a shorter period of time it's more it's more understandable from the point of view of their partners and they can move on from it when it's a 20-year history and there's children involved and there's it's a lot more difficult yeah, and I like to think of that as like digging a hole if I were to be out at the beach yes. in a hole and I just you know dig ones like a few scoops out uh, yeah. with my, with my shovel, it's so much easier. I can just push the sand back in and poof, my hole is filled. But right. if I've been digging a hole for 20 years, yeah, exactly. That yeah, I'm not just going to get to that beach with my shovel and, and fill it in a couple of minutes. It's going to take a lot. You're a couple of miles fill. down. You're yeah. a couple of miles down at that point. Right. And so I like to, I like to give people that visual of a hole, like how far down you get is going to take how long it takes to fill. And there's sure we get like a tractor and we could buy some sand from somewhere else to fill it in. And there's things that you can do that can facilitate recovery more quickly, but it's still going to take a long time. You're not going to, in this case, you're not just going to get someone with one tractor and one dump of sand to pour it in there. If it's been going on for 20 years, it's going to take a really long right. time. That's right. Uh, absolutely. 
And so if people, if someone has been going through compulsive sexual behavior for most of their life, yeah. let's say this is a person that's been going on for 20 years. Yeah. Can they change? Yeah, they can. They absolutely can. Um, wow. I mean, I'm thinking of a one person that I worked with who's now been, you know, we'll say, we'll use the word sexually sober, sexually sober for six, seven years now, and actually stayed married. Um, at the beginning, they ended up staying married for the kids. But the kids are now old, old enough and out of the house. They're, so they're, the relationship is real and solid. Um, but it takes some intensive work at the beginning to do many things like stop the behavior is not so easy. Um, really dig in and go back to some of those origins and heal some of that old, those old wounds is critical for longer term recovery. The, the partner also has to go into some kind of recovery, which is sometimes a hard, I'll just say it's a hard sell because you know, what a partner will say is, I'm not the problem, right? He or she is the problem. It's not me. Why do I have to go to treatment? Why? Because you were in the car accident with him. That's why, right? No, you weren't driving. It wasn't your fault. No, <laughs> right? But, but you got shattered you're traumatized, right? I, I, give, I give partners um, a PTSD inventory, like a tool to measure so they can see it too, that validates it. And they score high on PTSD inventories. That's why. And so everyone has to go through the recovery process together. Yeah, I, I, that imagery, that, that analogy you use is so powerful. So listeners know this is part of my history, but I got into this field because I went, um, my brother was a drug addict by the age of 13, uh, so at 17, he was in a long-term treatment center and anybody that lived in the home, family home had to participate. So as the older sister sibling, I was like, why do I have to go? I'm perfect. I'm on the national team for Taekwondo. I'm in university. Like, why do I have to go? Um, I, then I found out I wasn't perfect and I, I too had problems through this, but, yeah. and, and even as you were saying that, um, I got, I got chills. And if, I think if someone had explained it to me that way, when I was 21 being like, why do I have to participate in treatment for 12 hours a week? I might've been able to wrap my head around like, oh yeah, I was in the car accident too. I wasn't driving. Um, and so listeners know that piece. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't, I didn't understand why I had to be there, why I had to participate. And through the course of being there, I came to learn why I needed to be there, but it was right. a hard, it was a hard sell to a 21 year old girl early on. Why? why do I have to be here in this yeah. treatment center? This is crazy, right. but it, it makes so much sense. So what do you think if people start to get into treatment, both partners are doing some recovery, maybe they've gone into the treatment center too. What do you think gets in the way of, of changing uh, compulsive sexual behavior? Oh, what gets in the way? Um, one big thing is a person has had a lifetime, even if it's a short lifetime, of avoiding emotion, right? It's, a, it's like a, there's a detachment that happens during any addictive process. So going through treatment means facing emotion and learning how to tolerate negative affect, 
That's one big thing. So a therapist really has to understand that there are, there are going to be a lot of avoidant modes that show up. We've got to address those modes if we want to get to the wounded parts of people and help them learn how to manage it. Uh, another thing is they will surrender or they will lose hope. If, if you can imagine, if you've had this compulsive behavior since you were 12 and now you are 45, the idea of living without it, it you, don't, it's, you can't imagine what your life would be without it. So you have to have enough support. So I'd say that's enough support to get you through the initial phases so that you can at least see glimmers. Hey, I could have another life. And actually that life is better. Like I didn't imagine it would be better, but it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, as we're, as we're talking, I, I don't know if you can answer this question or not. I'm springing it on you, so feel free to not answer it. <laughs> I've noticed um, since the course of the pandemic, yeah, I've had uh, case after case after case after case after case, so like so many, where people who previously weren't engaging in sexually compulsive behavior as some sort of mind interpretation, some sort of coping response to especially where I live, we were in lockdowns basically till June of this year. Like we were very locked down, very locked wow. down. And I have, my caseload is honestly 50% of people who started online affairs yeah. during this time. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very curious if maybe this isn't enough information. Um, do you have any hypotheses about what factors in the pandemic could lead to people seeking out online companionship or connection. Yeah, uh, it's the first thing that pops out of my mind, which is the biggest trigger. Okay, so there's, there's one feeling that's the biggest trigger and one event. Interpersonal tears, like losing connection is the biggest reason for relapse of any addiction, but especially this one. Um, and loneliness, especially when someone's even gotten a certain a level of recovery, loneliness, which can look an awful lot like boredom, is the biggest trigger for sexual addictions. So <laughs> just take lockdown. It's like pouring in miracle grow for anyone who already had some pain around loneliness, emptiness. Um, and if they're, even if they're in a relationship, but they've been in one that's been unsatisfactory for a long time anyway, that they can't really talk to their partner and now they're in lockdown. Before they went to work, they had relationships at work, at least they didn't really feel particularly lonely. They had people. And now it's a year in you know, people got desperate. Well, I think what you're just saying, the relationship tear, and I, my experience so far has been that 
many couples struggled with redefining their new roles, new rituals of connection, how they're going to parent their kids, how they're going to work. There was tons of, even sometimes it wasn't big tears. It was like death by a thousand paper cuts. It was all the little new adaptations where over time leads to a big, could lead to a big tear. And I think a common phrase I've heard from many of my uh, partners who have gone through some form of betrayal, who who were the betrayer said something like there was already so much going on in my partner's life. I didn't want to add to them, add to, to add to their stress with my pain. Like I did want to talk to them, but yeah. I just didn't want to give them another thing to pile on. And so even in that sen- sentiment that I feel like they're echoing, I'm hearing that sense of like loneliness, that feeling of, I can't go to you. I want to even, but I, I feel like I can't for some reason. Right. That's right. Um, and it's like, it, you know, they could avoid that by, by doing, doing some treatment and finding out what's really going on. Yeah. Um, but you know, taking that step I know it's scary so scary yeah you are like this beautiful wealth of knowledge and I feel like as a human as a practitioner I've learned I've heard you speak before I work in this field I've learned so much from you already and I'm certain the listeners will as well um I'm curious before we go today yeah is there one piece one thought you hope people can hang on to from this um I, you know, I think that just just this idea that sexual addiction, like other addictions, the question is not why the addiction, but why the pain. If if we really, really look, actually look across addictive behaviors, that's the question we have to answer if we want people to get better. and it's this, I want to say in terms of partners, because there are going to be people out there that are listening that have had, have been in relationships with people with this. Um, you have pain too, and this is not either or, right? Your pain matters too, right? And you don't have to stay if the person isn't ready to get so sober right? Isn't ready for treatment. You don't have to stay. So I don't feel like you do. Um, but if you want to, if there's enough there, recovery is absolutely possible. So I think that's, those are the, yeah, that's powerful. I'm curious, uh, fill us in a little bit. If you want to, how did you get into this field? Um, so when I was in my twenties, um, I had a very close friend who was going into seminary, as a matter of fact, who had a sex addiction and he confided it in me. And like, he was, um, uh, he was like a boy scout. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like he, he had this persona of he was good social worker going into seminary. It's such a good guy. Um, and he, he was, um, going to, and at the time, I mean, we're talking about in the early nineties, um, there wasn't as much talk about these kinds of issues. He was a heterosexual male identified having sex with transsexual women, um, feeling horrible shame, seeing escorts, getting, I mean, had the most split life you can imagine. And that's when I realized this is a real thing. This guy is tortured. He, it's like, it, 
I was just heartbroken for him. And that's what got me interested in treating sex addiction. I can only imagine to feel, listen to someone's story, feel heartbroken. And you could see that this sounds like a very clear, like there's two very different sides to this person. You're like, wow. Two very different people. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So that's how, yeah. All right. Great. So people, if people want to learn more about you from you, is there a place where they can follow you or find more information about you and the work you do? Yes. They can go to elizabethlacy.com. Um, and in fact, I'm going to be introducing a new website with some new, really good YouTube videos that I think could be helpful to listeners. So amazing. Can... Well, we will link All your right. information to the show. All right. Great. Thank you. Amazing. Yes. Thank you for tuning in to Relationship Psych, the podcast put on by Ember Relationship Psychology. If you're looking for more free relationship help or advice that comes straight from the couple's therapy room, check out the free resources and the blog at www.emberrelationshippsychology.com.